Well, we had an exciting morning. It was uh, wonderful after services to get to watch Joel and Noah McRae be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. It's just always makes the day, makes the week, and all of that. And so it was really great to see them them do that. They wanted less crowd. They're a little on the shyer side, so they leaked out a few people and then said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so uh, that was their intention. I understand that. So really excited about that to encourage them and get to know that's a, a really great family if you haven't been able to spend some time with them yet. They're really uh, wonderful and, and it's uh, really an asset for us to have them with us. And uh, we are continuing our study in the book of Job. And uh, we're going to now see Zophar take his shot here at Job already. We have seen the first two friends of Job attempt to show Job that he is obviously not innocent of sin and that his suffering is caused by his sin. But we remember those first two chapters in the book of Job that plainly told us, clearly stated by God and by the narrator, that that's not the case, that Job is upright, he is blameless, he fears God, he turns from evil. And uh, with Job maintaining his integrity and blamelessness, now Job's third friend, Zophar, is going to try to comfort Job. As it says, they came to comfort him, and yet obviously that's really not their intent as they try to get Job to see uh, what he needs to do to change. And so as we've been doing in this series, we will look at the words of Zophar and consider the things that he decrees that are false. We will then spend some time looking at Job and what he says that is accurate and what we learn about that and then looking at the two of them together we'll consider what we learn about God. Uh, Since this discourse is four chapters of course can't read it all and I really want to, really, really want to Uh, but That's what Wednesday night is for, is that we'll go through more of the details, so we'll scan some of the things as we look at the various statements that are made. So let's begin by looking at at Zophar and, and see what he has to say here in his speech, and that's found in Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11 and verse 1, Then Zophar the Namathai answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less then your guilt deserves. Well, that's quite an open. <laughs> so, so far now steps in, as we've talked about in seeing the three friends as they speak to Job, they increasingly get worse and increasingly get more acoustic as they go. And you'll notice the first couple of verses here, so far just says, you're a windbag. You're full of chatter and babbling and will your words continue to go on and on and on? You're not saying anything valuable and we're not listening to anything that you have to say. And he challenges Job's position of being righteous. In verse 4, how can you possibly say that you're innocent? You're not blameless. That's why you have suffered all of this. And Zophar says what needs to happen is that God needs to come and put you in in your place. 
And what is interesting is that Zophar doesn't know of any of Job's sins. Job doesn't have any to point to and say, this is the reason why you are suffering this way. But what he is doing is he is looking at the result by just saying, well, because you're suffering, you cannot be innocent. You must not be righteous. So how can you maintain your integrity and say that you are righteous and blameless and you haven't done anything wrong or worthy to deserve this when you're suffering to the degree that you are and so far I think up to this point verse 6 probably is the sharpest words that we've read of any of the people so far know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves if you think about all that Job has experienced at this point and what Zophar now says is you're not even getting all you deserve first of all he is saying what you have received is deserved and in fact more should be happening to you that's how guilty you are you think you've suffered much you are getting less than you deserve in fact what we would say is you know it could be worse in fact he says it should be worse for you well that's quite a comfort Wow, thanks. You know, that's why you see Job really saying, why'd you guys even come? You know, why are you even here to talk like this to me? But I want us to consider how often that's the kind of thing that we can do to people. And say, well, it should be worse for you or it could be worse. And that's not comfort to the person. And that's what Job is going to say. And that's what Zophar does here is, you know, you should be receiving a far worse punishment than you're receiving right now. That's a terrible concept, a terrible thing to say. And when it comes regarding Job, it's just simply inaccurate. And to be as cold and callous and, and dark-hearted as Zophar is, to say to somebody who has lost all of his wealth, he's lost all of his possessions, ten children are dead, he is suffering physically, sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he's sitting outside the city gates on an ash pile, scraping himself with broken pottery and misery, he's full of tears, he can't sleep, he's terrified in visions and dreams, he is very restless and there is no peace, and this fellow comes along and says, you know, you're only getting a, a fraction of what you deserve. So, the three friends have moved quite a bit away from how can we help and comfort you to basically charging Job with a quite a bit of, of wrong. In verses 7 through 12, what you see them so far do is really challenge Job and, and basically calls Job stupid. You see that specifically in verse 12, where he just basically says, Only a fool and a stupid person like Job would try to even understand God. You can't understand God. You are an empty-headed person for thinking that you're going to try to understand God. Because consider that's what Job is doing. In Job, in his statements, he said, I don't understand what God is doing. This doesn't make sense. Why is God doing these things to me? He's going to even do it as we're going to look at tonight. Why am I your enemy? Why am I separated from you? Why is this going on and so far his response is basically you're empty headed for trying to understand God he is far too vast he's far too deep he's far too too uh, impossible for you to grasp and, and you're being dumb for even trying to do something like that and I want to consider that for a minute because I think there's a tendency for Christians to sometimes say that same thing 
Uh, and I know that I, I've heard that in my lifetime where people will, will say things like that. Well, well, you know, who can understand God? He's just far too vast. He's, you know, who, and who can begin to comprehend the, the things of God? And I want to challenge that idea because that's not the idea behind the passages that are frequently used to validate that idea. Like Romans 11 verse 33, Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor? Sounds like Paul is saying, you just can't know God, right? It's just far too vast, it's unsearchable, you can't know Him, you can't understand So, So don't don't even bother trying to understand God. That's not what the Apostle Paul is doing. The Apostle Paul is trying to get us to understand by using your own logic and reason, by searching your, through your own wisdom and comprehension and, and, and logic, you're not going to be able to grasp the plan of God. You will never be able to sit down and go, you know what, I think I can figure all this out on my own. I know exactly what God is doing. You say, no, you can't do that. It's not possible for you of your own will or your own wisdom or your own knowledge come to an understanding of God. You can't go off to a faraway place, sit up on a mountain, meditate for a while, and now you fully understand God. He's far too bad. That's what he's doing. But the idea is not to say, so don't try to get to know God. He's just too deep. He's just too vast. He's too unsearchable. It's just not possible. It's not the idea. Sometimes Isaiah 55 is really the one that's used the most. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And sometimes people will come to this and say, so see, you can't understand God. His ways are far too vast and far too high and we're down here too long you can't understand notice that's not what that context is notice i brought in the first two verses in front of it what does he begin by saying that you're supposed to do seek the lord why because his ways are better than your ways and his thoughts are better and higher than your thoughts you're supposed to exchange your thinking for god's thinking exchange your ways for god's thinking And that's the whole thing that is going on here is that we're intended to spend our very lives coming to understand God. To be able to sit back and go, oh, well, he's just too vast and he's too deep and it's too much is just wimping out on what God has called us to do. What does every prophet say to do? What does they run around say? Know the Lord. Now the prophets go, well, you know, that's too hard. You know, know the Lord, no, you know, that's okay. He's too deep, he's too vast, he's too wonderful, he's too unsearchable, and so don't, don't even bother trying. Why do we have this if we're not supposed to know the Lord and know his ways and understand the mind of the Lord? Why does this exist and why do you read it? It's the whole purpose. By no means should we ever characterize God as saying, don't bother trying to get to know me. What God is doing is saying, of your own wisdom and knowledge, you can't know me. 
You need to come to my ways and my thoughts if you're going to come to know me. You got to listen to my words. You have to hear what I'm saying. And only then can you come to know me. Notice how Zophar is coming to Job and saying, you're a fool for trying to understand God. No, he's not. No, he's not. There is absolutely nothing wrong with Job scratching his head and going, I don't understand. Why is this happening? What is going on? What is God doing? God wants us to seek Him. God wants us to search for Him. God wants us to learn of Him and begin to understand Him. And the way to learn of Him and the way to understand Him is to listen to what He's saying. There's no other way. We can't learn of Him any other way but to listen to what He's saying. So don't default like Zophar and go, well, just, you know, it's just too hard. It's just too vast. I heard a story told to me that some... Uh, a Bible teacher came to a, a hard text in Rome, or maybe it's First Peter, and said, well, there are just some things that we just can't understand. Let's just go into the next verse. Don't think God wrote it so that you would read it and go, well, well, you know, he's too deep, he's too vast, he's too hard. Next verse. Understand, God said it for a reason. It is our goal then to try to learn God and seek Him and grasp Him. And so Zophar is trying to lead Job astray when he says these words. And then finally, the rest of chapter 11 from verse 13 to 20, we shouldn't be surprised, is that Zophar now turns to the default answer of retribution theology. Remember, retribution theology is if you just fix up your life, God would give you blessings. So do good, God blesses you do bad, God curses you. Since you've been suffering, you must have done bad. So if then you will pray to God, verse 13, if you'll repent to God, verse 14, then God is going to make your whole life better, which is what he describes in verses 15 to 20. It'll all be roses and sunshine and everything will just be all better if you just pray to God and, and repent. And in fact, he points out in verse 20 and says, and if Job, you choose not to repent, that shows you're wicked. That just proves my point all the more if you won't pray to God for repentance. And so again, this retribution theology comes up, this whole idea that you can fix all of your problems and that your life would go so much better if you just pray and repent and it all get fixed. We touched on it for maybe a moment this morning in our study, but I would just like for you to explore in your mind for a moment in the scriptures. Where do the scriptures ever promise that God will fully restore your life after a trial passes. Once you get through to the other side, God will fix everything that has ever happened to you in this life. He'll just take care of it and he'll reverse it all and it'll all be better. You know, I think even Job gets me to use that way, this book. You jump out to chapter 42 and hey, there's the great reversal and see it all will be okay and it'll all turn out in the end. So I use the quote of, well, it always gets better. Does God say that he's going to restore your life after great loss? He's going to restore your physical life after you, you've lost a spouse, you've gone through divorce. Where are the promises of these things that when a loved one dies or something like that, there's this great hope of, well, it's all going to be restored here in this life. It doesn't exist. God never makes those kinds of promises. It is fascinating to me to listen to uh, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar all continue to beat this drum that if you just repent, it'll all be better. Friends, that's basically a, a version of what the health and wealth gospel is. 
just come to the Lord and it'll all be better. Your wallet will get fatter and your houses will get bigger and you'll have more cars and it'll all be better if you just serve the Lord. And if that's not happening to you, then you don't have enough faith and you just need to have more faith. And then those things would happen to you. And those promises are not made. That's not what God says as well, that I'm just going to give you everything in this life and it'll all be better and I'll reverse all of your problems if you just simply follow me. And so again, this retribution theology continues to fall short. It is a promise that gives false hope to humans, but it's not a promise that God offers. And this is what what Job's response really is all about. When we look at chapters 12 to 14, three chapter response now. As he deals with Zophar as well as the three friends, as he's going to do a really great job in just dismantling these arguments that these three friends have been making, that this is the way that you can categorize, categorize God. I love the first six verses. Listen to this. <clears throat> Chapter 12, verse 1. And Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God, and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughingstock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. I love this beginning response because ultimately what he's going to do in this section is Job is going to say, uh, God cannot be systematically explained. I'm going to catch fire here, so I'm going to turn that down. God cannot be systematically explained. You can't just simply put it all together and say, this is the way it is. But I love the criticism that he begins by just saying, well, Zophar, clearly you're a know-it-all. Wisdom's going to die with you when you go. You're so smart. You've got it all figured out, don't you? And points out in verse 3, you're not saying anything new. You're not saying anything I don't know. And he points out, I've called out to God. But everybody sees me as a laughingstock. You can see, basically, you three especially. (laughs) Uh, I have cried out to God. I have been calling out to Him. Now, notice we've seen this, this differentiation where the three friends are saying, call out to God in repentance. And he's saying, I don't need to call out for that. I'm calling out to God to hear my case. Uh, I don't have anything that I need to repent of as the basis by which this suffering has, has occurred. And now in this, this rest of this section, I want you just to listen how, God, how Job says this, which is a great explanation uh, about how we should understand God. Verse 7. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, or the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as a palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged. And understanding the length of days. With God our wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped. And judges, he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds the waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the speech of those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps 
Out of the darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in pathless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. That is a fantastic answer to these three guys. Did you catch what he's getting at here? Is because what he does is he gives a picture of God and says, please try to explain the actions of God. Please go about looking at the universe and see if you can put it together. And he uses things that we ourselves also try to figure out, well, why does that happen? He starts with the weather. He says, He causes it not to rain some places and there's a drought. And then another place it pours and there's a flood and wipes them all out. Can you explain that? Why are they getting a flood and they're in a drought? I don't know. And then he goes a little bit further in verse 16 and 21. He describes the fate of leaders and says, Are you going to be able to explain that? Some of the rulers are allowed to continue on in strength, while others he strips and overthrows. Who can explain why good leaders are cut short, while horrible leaders are given power to rule? You begin to look at the leaders and go, well, why them and not them? Why are they judged and not them? Can you explain systematically why God allows certain kings to rise and certain kings to fall, and certain to have longevity and rule and strength, and others are cut short? Job says, you, you think you've got systematic answers to these things as to how God runs, runs the world? And then in verses 22 to 25, he shifts it to the nations and makes the very same argument. Why are some nations given great strength and go on and on and on? And then some nations he gives them strength and then carries them away. Who can begin to explain all those things? And that's the whole idea that Job is getting at here to these three friends is, You think that you can just have this systematic explanation about how God always does things. And to be fair, sometimes we try to do that, don't we? We try to come up with some kind of theological construct by which if we have God in this box, now I can explain why God does this and not this. And it's usually pretty flimsy when we get after it. Let's just even use the scriptures for that and and the things that even mystify us. Acts chapter 5, how many times have we tried to come with an answer of why God kills Ananias and Sapphira? And there's a bunch of other rebels that appear in the New Testament, right? These two get, get killed immediately. What systematic explanation can you come up with of why? Well, I know we've, you know, we've come up with, with, with many trying, but who's got the answer? We don't. How about Acts 12? Acts 12 is perhaps the most startling, right? Herod kills the Apostle James by the sword. But for some reason, when the Apostle Peter is in prison and is about to be killed by Herod, Peter is set free miraculously by an angel. Please explain systematically why God spared Peter but let James die. And this is all Job's doing. Is are you really going to look at the universe and go, there's a systematic answer to everything that happens? Are you going to be able to explain the rise and fall of nations and wicked leaders and good leaders and explain the weather and droughts and floods and disasters? Can you really explain systematically, here's the reason why all these things happen? Because, see, that's what they're trying to do to Job. I have the answer of why you're suffering. It's as systematic and obvious as it could be. The reason you're suffering is you must have sinned. And Job is saying, 
God's far more complex than that. And how often we want to boil down the characteristics and wisdom and might of God and boil it down into some very simple, shallow construct to say, well, now I understand God. And Job's going, you can't do that. You can't begin to understand those things. We can't explain why those things happen. How often have we been challenged by those things? You know, like, you know, why, why was there a Hitler who did all those horrible atrocities? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We, we can't begin to try to explain when we read things that God causes the rise and fall of leaders and the rise and fall of nations. We studied the book of Daniel, making it very plain. God is sovereign and ruling over the affairs of the earth, but we can't explain why these things go the way they go. And this is all that Job is doing in this response in chapter 12, is saying you can't begin to try to put God in any kind of box. In fact, chapter 13, he's going to make the point, by doing so, you are actually being deceitful to God. This is the, the, the thrust of the first half of chapter 13 from, from verse 1 down to verse 12. You have Job basically continuing to point out that these arguments that he made, these three friends make is absolutely false. Notice again the humor of what he says. Chapter 13, verse 1. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you... You whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be wisdom for you. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case of God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes and your defenses are defenses of clay. (laughs) It's amazing that he has this much wisdom and wit about him in the midst of all that he's going through. What fantastic answers he gives. First, he begins by saying, you guys are worthless doctors. <laughs> you guys have just been absolutely useless. You've had no value to me whatsoever. In fact, wisdom for you would be to keep quiet and points out what they are saying is actually deceitful. They are making up lies to maintain their system of love. People do that. They will maintain lies and deceit to be able to maintain particular constructs and doctrines and theologies about God. And that's what he says you three are doing. You're making up these rules about God that just don't apply and don't work. You can't do that. Thus to say what you're doing is you're speaking wickedly on God's behalf. And and I think what a great thought Job makes here is, do you really think you can defend God? Do you really think you have the wisdom or the ability to step in and go, well, let me defend God's case in all this. I can explain what God is doing. And Job's like, really? Is that really where you want to go? How well would it go if you went through this? If you were put on display and you had to endure all these things? He tells them in verses 10 and 11, you'd be doomed. You'd absolutely be doomed because the things that you're saying are platitudes of ashes. (laughs) It's just... You can't construct your life or build faith on the things that you've been saying. Everything you've said has been completely worthless. And so he challenges them by saying, you have been deceitful in this systematic concept of what you have of God. 
That leads him to verses 13 to 28 of chapter 13. And what he does here is he's just going to make the argument that all that I have left to do is to take my defense and my appeal and my cry to God. That's all I have left. Listen to what he does in verse 13 of chapter 13. Let me have silence and I will speak. Let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation that the godless cannot come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as an enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf or pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in stocks and wash, watch all my paths. You set limits for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth eaten. Very emotional response that occurs here. And you hear just Job say, all that I have is to be able to take my, my case to God. That's, that's his only hope is to lay his cause before God. And I want you to see the seriousness of what he says because he understands the gravity of what he's asking. He's saying God may kill him in doing this. Notice how he words that there, verse 14. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth or put my life in in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to, to his face. He says, I have no other option. I have to present my case to God, and he may kill me doing it. But I'm going to put my life in my hands, put flesh in my teeth, because that's the only hope that I have. And he bases that like in verse 16 where he says, I know the godless can't come before God, but he knows that he's not that. He knows that he's blameless and upright. So this is his salvation. This is his defense is that I'm righteous and that'll be my vindication. And so he may slay me, but that's my hope is that I'm not godless and I can put my case before him and God will vindicate me. And so you see a a recognition that what he is saying is bold and daring. But he knows he has no other choice. He has no other option. And so that's what he lays out is that this may be the end of me, but I have to continue to make my complaint and lay out my case before God. He challenges the friends, verse 19. Are you going to show me? Show, go ahead and show me my sin. He's challenged his friends before you keep saying, I need to repent. Chad, go ahead. Go ahead and show me what I've done wrong and I'll keep silent, but I haven't done anything wrong. So I'll continue to make my pleading to God. I'll continue to make my case about what I've done and how this is not deserved because I have not sinned in this regard. And then when you read verses 20 to 28, it's, it's fairly chilling because what you have is, is basically pleading with God to stop terrifying him. We've seen him allude to this before and how he cannot sleep and God terrifies him in dreams and visions. It's just a terrible time physically for him. There is no rest for him. 
And so he's just calling out for God. If there's just anything you would do, verse 21, he just simply says, just just let, let, let not dread of you terrify me. Withdraw your hand from me because I'm fearful of you. And then you see what he does, though, in the midst of that, like verse 22, then call and I will answer. Let me speak and you reply to me as you have Job still expressing faith in God through this. It is really fantastic to read that he continues to say again and again, my faith is in God. That's why he wants to make his case to God. That's why he wants to plead to him is that he's still expressing faith in God, but he is just worn down and broken and devastated by all that he has experienced. And so the intensity of Job's suffering after all these many months continues to not ease up in the slightest, which then rounds out to chapter 14, where basically all that Job says is, it's hopeless. And we've seen him do that before. But you notice like the first two verses, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers and he flees like a shadow and continues not. Basically, the life of a human is very short and it's just full of trouble. And that's how he just looks at life. It's just life is short and it's fixed by God. And there's not any hope whatsoever. In fact, he uses a a really neat picture. Let's just go ahead and read it and see if you catch the imagery that he does in verse 7. He says in chapter 14, verse 7, For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud. It will put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and is dries up. So a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work for for you would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up like a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him as he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, but he does not know it. They are brought low and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain in his own body and he mourns only for himself. That is a fantastic end to this discourse. Notice what he does is he's considering his life and he's considering the brevity of life. And he points out plants and trees have hope after they're cut down. They can sprout again. He says, you know, they would they would grow again over time and bring water and the roots would grow again. But he says, but when it comes to man, that's not the case. If I'm cut down, that's the end. 
And that's what he's describing here is he wishes that he could be like the plants and the trees where he says, I could just lay low and let your wrath pass over me and then I could sprout again to new life. I wish I was like a tree and could find new life again and have that kind of kind of restoration. So he's looking at these things and going, it is interesting that in the, the plant life that there is the ability to have life again. But when it comes to humans, they do not have this hope. And verse 16, 17 says, oh, how I wish that you would be able to take the sins and have them be forgotten, to bag them up and throw them out like the trash. Remember why Job is speaking like that, because in retribution theology, you're thinking if you're suffering like this, you must be separated from God. And so he doesn't understand why he's separated from God, but he is longing for this restored relationship. But notice the hopelessness of his words is that that can't happen. As he's describing here the the trees and the roots, like verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 9, he points out that, with man, that is not a case, not, not the case for him. Verse 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? And if that were possible, then verse 15, I would call and I would answer you and you would number my steps and you would not watch over my sins. He's picturing this great restored relationship. If I could just have a new life after I was cut down and I could raise from the grave and we could just start this relationship again. But then verses 18 to 22 is, but that hope doesn't exist. God does not give me that hope at all. And that's what he says there, verse 19, so you destroy the hope of man. He doesn't think that's possible. And so he draws a very important conclusion. He draws the conclusion that if there isn't a resurrection, that there isn't hope. And he's right. It's an interesting observation he makes. He makes the observation about the plant life and says, you know, they can be cut down and there can be life again. But to the human, he observes and says, that's not possible. Oh, for the hope that that could be possible, that that would exist. But he says in his understanding of God that that doesn't exist whatsoever. The message then I think is so powerful because this is the question that Job is posing about without resurrection, then there's no hope for humanity. And I hope that you would consider how vastly true that is. This life is absolutely full of misery if there's nothing else to consider except the right here, right now. And that's what Job is doing is he's saying, I wish I could be buried in shield. Put me in the grave. Let the, your anger pass by and then raise me up and call me again and I would answer and we, I would serve you and we have this restored relationship and I'd follow in your steps and it'd be great. And I think it is so fascinating how many people deny God and don't consider the utter futility of life if there is not resurrection. This life is miserable beyond compare if it is only you are here today and gone tomorrow and that's it if it is the truth of the matter then chapter 14 verses 1 and 2 are so true is that we are born of a woman and it's few of days it is full of trouble you come out like a flower and it withers it flees like a shadow and continues not Writer of Ecclesiastes just spends an enormous amount of time validating that point of view and saying that's exactly what life looks like without God. If you remember, the Apostle Paul said similarly, if in Christ we 
have hope in this life only. We, speaking of the apostles, of all people would be the most pitied. Uh, We're certainly doomed for all their sacrificing and all their giving and how they are mistreated and what they have sacrificed for the cause of Christ. If there's no resurrection, we are certainly to be pitied of, of all. In the last minute or two, I want you to just turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 and just notice how Peter stands on this thought. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You hear what Peter does there? Is here is Peter and he says, There is a living hope that is given to the Christian because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, It is on that basis, verse 6, that you are able to have joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, to go through distress and difficulty like Job is going through. The hope that you need is that, yes, humans can live again. It is so fascinating to see that what God does through Job is present a picture where he longs for something that he doesn't seem to think can happen. And later Revelation comes along and goes, yeah, it does. It does happen. It is possible. It does exist. How much of the Old Testament was intended to draw those people to think and consider You need a savior because of your sins. You need to see the holiness of God. Look at what you need and to grasp for those kinds of things. And here is Job doing that very thing where he's posing the questions. Can humans even live? Can can humans rise again? Can they live again? And here is this great thing is that yes, yes, it comes to reality that that changes everything about this life and it changes the perspective of trials. And I think that's what makes this book fascinating. One of the things that we've talked about a few times is that Job does not allow a perspective of Job, it's all going to be okay in the sweet by and by and the hereafter. He's never, he's never given that. Nobody comes to him and says, though you suffer now all these things, you have a resurrection, you're going to be with God in eternity forever to be comfort and wonderful. doesn't get any of that. And how amazing it is then that we're able to be on the other side of that and we get to hear those kinds of words. It changes everything about how we live life. It changes how we handle trials. It is the very hope that we need. And that's what you have the Apostle Paul, why he says words like this, a text that we often use to confirm baptism. But listen to the point that he's getting at in Romans 6 verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that 
Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's what that symbol is to represent to us. If you've been united with him in death, you have cut off the sins of the flesh and been buried in the waters of baptism. He says there's something that you are also certainly united to, a resurrection like his. That is the endurance we need to be able to endure trials because I know that there is more to look forward to than just simply trying to get whatever pleasure and whatever joy I can in this life because it fails us. We can't begin to understand the chaos of this world or begin to construct why things happen the way they do and our life is fragile and it is short and it is full of trouble. And it causes us all the more to long for a resurrection where we can be in paradise and be at home with God. It is amazing that here is Job going, I just want a restored relationship. And that is supposed to be our earnest desire as well while we're on this earth. It's just longing to be able to return to be with God. That's what I want. I want to be near my God again. And so whatever I go through, that's what I look forward to. And that's why Paul would say to those Corinthians, death has lost its sting. And through that, we have hope. And that's what Job was longing to hear, were words like that. He needed words of hope. And those are the words of hope we get to hear because of Jesus Christ. I hope that will encourage you through suffering. And I hope it will cause you to consider the false things of Zophar, who speaks ill of the ways of God, and to recognize that although we cannot explain what God is doing, We have a certainty of an outcome that we get to look forward to that carries us through the difficulties and through the trials and through the suffering. In our Sunday morning lessons, as we go through 2 Corinthians, we're going to see the Apostle Paul put his finger back on that again and again and again. He'll get to chapter 5 and talk about this earthly tent might perish, but we have a building waiting from God. Constantly returning to that idea as he's just trying to comfort the Corinthians in their afflictions, always returning to the hope of the resurrection that's found in Jesus Christ. Will you come to Jesus today, turn away from your sins, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so that you with certainty can have the hope of eternal life? I hope you consider your situation and consider the hope that God offers you If you're ready to come to him, if you're ready to give your life to Jesus and follow him with all of your heart and serve him, tonight is the opportunity to do so. Won't you come and do that now while we stand?